Our future is digital. If you're not part of it, you're out of it. Welcome to Meet the Leader, the podcast where top leaders share how they're tackling the world's biggest challenges. Today's guest, Akam Steiner. He heads up the United Nations Development Program, and he's going to talk about policy's unique role in supporting tech and leveling playing fields around the world. He'll also share a special message for the annual meeting about what we can all achieve if we commit to working together. Subscribe to Meet the Leader on Apple, Spotify, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review us. I'm Linda Lacina from the World Economic Forum, and this is Meet the Leader. Digital technology can exclude or include people. As we know, COVID made a lot of difficult problems that much worse. Problems like access to food or healthcare or opportunity. What you might not have heard is that technology could help address those challenges. And it might even balance the scales. Research from the World Economic Forum's 2030 Vision Initiative found that 70% of the global goals can be directly supported by advanced technologies. Now, the global goals include things like eradicating hunger and strengthening opportunity, and include 169 United Nations targets to ensure that all people enjoy peace and prosperity by 2030. Well, we are only a few years away from 2030, and Akam will tell us about the importance of digital inclusion and the urgent role that policy will play in enabling technologies. We often underestimate how much alignment of public policy, private sector investments are fundamental to, to breakthroughs. He'll share some special solutions that will move us forward, including a new tool from the Edison Alliance, a World Economic Forum initiative that aims to increase affordable digital access to healthcare, finance, and education, all to improve the lives of 1 billion people by 2025. As a step toward that end, the UNDP helped us develop this new tool that is publicly available today. And it's one that will provide policymakers, regulators, and businesses across the world with a one-stop shop for case studies, best practices, and other one-of-a-kind resources. He'll explain how that effort can support larger goals in this critical moment of change. But first, he'll tell us more about digital inclusion and why it's so important. Digital inclusion is really about deliberately wanting to ensure that those less likely to be able to be early adopters or users are actually catered for. In the United Nations, we often refer to this as leaving no one behind. And UNDP's Human Development Report in 2019 pointed out that digitalization and climate change are potentially the greatest drivers for inequality or greater equality. And digitalization certainly is all about how do we design digital ecosystems that allow, for example, young people to have access where cost is not an excluding factor or women have access to technology that in traditional contexts may not have been allowed access to use these. So all of this is a, an intentional approach to ensuring that everybody can benefit because by virtue of not being included, you will create greater inequalities. Our future is digital. If you're not part of it, you're out of it. And just to give more of a picture of what that looks like on the ground, when we talk about people um, you know, not being included, what does that look like? How are their lives sort of held back? How is their progress slowed? Well, I think across the world, COVID-19 was a, a very clarifying moment. If you were a parent and your child could not connect via internet to some form of educational institution, you essentially lost a year or two of education. And there were many many children across the world who essentially lost a year or two of their education during the pandemic. 
but it's also about access to our financial system. For instance, um, digital banking and digital finance has been a revolution in enabling people who traditionally would never have been considered in a formal banking system to be viable account holders to suddenly be able to transact money, to trade, to get access to information. And suddenly we have seen hundreds of millions of people who are not wealthy people, but are poor people being able to, for example, even borrow money in the morning now on their smartphone in order to buy perhaps the produce in the wholesale market, take it to their local market, sell it and repay that loan in the evening, all done on smartphones where financial inclusion has created an entirely different economic universe. So these are just two examples, I think, that speak to the, the power of technology, but also to the way that you designed this. And Kenya was very famous for the M-Pesa platform. But the actual decision to allow that platform to come alive, namely a cell phone company to operate a financial platform, was a deliberate decision by the Central Bank of Kenya at the time to say that this could be a revolution in inclusive finance. So just a few illustrations of how real this is in, in terms of people's lives. Why is it important that digital inclusion is more widely focused on and understood? Well, let me take a, a very contemporary example in the Ukraine. Um, the war in Ukraine right now has caused extraordinary displacement. First of all, 5 million people have already become refugees, have fled the country, but 7 million people have been, you know, essentially forced to leave their homes and are internally displaced people. Just in the last three weeks, we have worked with Swedish funding and our Ukrainian counterparts in quickly developing an app that would allow internally displaced people to rapidly connect directly to the government services, the facilities, the means of support that are available to these people. And uh, just as of yesterday, 270,000 people have registered on that. You know, something that would have taken us months, maybe years, or could never have been done 10 years ago, can literally now be done in a matter of weeks. And I think this is an example where, you know, sometimes disaster strikes. It may be a war such as we are seeing now. It may be a natural disaster. Even in the world of, let's say, wealthier countries, um, digital technology is very much also something that can exclude or include people. Given how important it is and how sort of widespread all this is, what don't people understand? What's needed to close this gap? Particularly in UNDP, we have spent the last three years trying to become a digitally literate organization. That is, first of all, to understand the technology, how it informs our own working, but then also to understand what it means to, um, in a country on the African continent, Latin America, or indeed anywhere in the world, um, that this is not just a matter of infrastructure. It's not just the fiber optic cable. It's not just the numbers of subscribers. It is how you build a digital ecosystem. And a lot of that has to do with access, um, but also with um, fundamental rights, uh, data privacy. We've also seen that, you know, in this digital universe and the, the internet and, and that ubiquitous access to information gives rise to things that we often find very difficult to tolerate. And one of the interesting things that the Secretary General's high-load panel on digitalization also highlighted is we have spent 70 years developing fundamental human rights legislation, protecting children, protecting people from human trafficking, trafficking or uh, political radicalization in the sense of hate speech. And we are still struggling with the fact that in the analog world, we set those rules for ourselves and we put boundaries also on what people could do to each other. And somehow in the digital world, there has been this underlying sense that these rules don't apply. I think we have to relearn that you know, data privacy is something that actually has to do with the fundamental right of an individual. But also, you know, children that leave school, if your curriculum is not deliberately empowering them to be digitally literate, they enter a labor market and are often at a great disadvantage. You know, um, education is still in many parts of the world 
a privilege in terms of either quality or even access. So a very deliberate design into, for instance, school leavers having the digital skills to perform in this new economy is critical. And then you go further in the digital ecosystem, you look at startups. Usually, you know, young people who want to start businesses are not very credible people in the banking system. So access to finance, which is critical for all these wonderful startup enterprises, is extremely difficult to obtain. So we work with financial institutions to develop particular programs that allow um, these credit lines to be accessible to, to a startup universe. These are all elements of building a digital ecosystem rather than just building an infrastructure um, or, in a sense, counting the number of people who own cell phones and smartphones. Transformation takes building new capabilities. What are the unsung capabilities that need to be built to make digital inclusion possible? I think, first of all, it is to recognize that we, you know, in shaping a digital ecosystem, it's it's not only the, the company that is offering a platform, it's not only the consumer or the service user, but also the service provider who define this. We are really talking about all actors coming together. Regulatory frameworks can either enable or disable uh, certain things from happening. They can accelerate investments or they can simply ignore the fact that some people don't have the resources. Similarly, companies um, are looking, particularly with the advent of artificial intelligence, I think we can all sense that that need to quickly agree on what is justifiable in terms of artificial intelligence. We know about biases that are in the algorithms. And, you know, we suddenly find, for instance, uh, in the world of insurance, the risk that many people are ex essentially being in an algorithm deemed not to be uh, worthy clients. And you can find a whole group of people in society being excluded. So the capabilities begin with the kind of policy framework, the regulatory framework, the legal frameworks, but they then also go into how companies deliberately develop services that are geared towards, let's say, an inclusive approach to society. One of the phenomena that I think that we have seen with the advent of digital technology is obviously that where somebody strikes um, a brilliant idea, is an early um, starter and, so to speak, gets into the market, you also see that very quickly you become a dominant player in the market. We have spent the last 100 years understanding that competition is a good thing. So how do we avoid monopolies and oligopolies also in the digital world, particularly with cryptocurrency and, and some of the large platforms that have literally in a matter of a decade become global dominant players in the marketplace, not only providing amazing service, but also displacing many other players in the market and making it much more difficult for new ones to enter. So regulatory and competition policy are also important. And you then go down to the very basic skills um, that you need to develop in the education system, but also in our labor markets, where many people need to essentially acquire new skills. It's a lifelong learning uh, strategy that increasingly both companies and economies that are successful are putting in place. The UNDP has a number of initiatives making impact. Can you describe one that's surprised you? Well, very difficult to capture some of these stories in a, in a short um, discussion like this, but let me just point you to a report, the Secretary-General's High-Level Panel on Digital Finance and the Sustainable Development Goals. I think this is was an attempt to actually harvest two and a half years ago the richness of these extraordinary transformative experiences. I've already touched on the financial sector, financial inclusion clearly being one of them, but also telehealth. Uh, in the context of COVID-19, we found that many people, particularly in developing countries where the health system and infrastructure is not as developed as in wealthier countries, how do people get access to advice? You know, this was a virus, we didn't know um, how to deal with it. So we, in Bangladesh, but also many other countries, supported, first of all, the establishment of a telehealth worker platform, 
train 3,000 uh, nurses and, and doctors on how to use it, and suddenly created access to literally millions of people in the rural areas, because Bangladesh has a very digitally uh, developed infrastructure already, the, the capacity to access immediate health advice. Very interesting. In India, we developed a vaccine platform uh, that allows digital technology and a decentralized set of health centers using simple cellular phone infrastructure to have um, in real time, um, for instance, the numbers of vaccine stocks that are available so that your supply chain can already be triggered two or three days in advance rather than running out, reporting to the district capital, then ordering it and waiting for a week. All of these are sort of very interesting examples of how people are working with technology. And UNDP, a couple of years ago, set up 90 what we call the UNDP Accelerator Labs, which in part were a kind of attempt to create the capacity within our teams to study where innovations were coming from within the country, looking at the tech sector, the startup sector, but also local community-driven solutions. And again, what we have unearthed is an extraordinary amount of innovation. And as a development agency, we work with governments now to either create better policy contexts where they can be scaled up or remove blockages, sometimes regulatory or legal blockages or financial constraints, so that the dynamic that is really coming from within countries, from the next generation of technology users, becomes really almost an open source approach. And this is something we're also at the moment addressing with the Edison Alliance, because I think we need to take advantage of our ability to literally learn instantly from one another across the globe right now. I was about to mention the Edison Alliance, since the UNDP has been such an incredible partner. Can you explain more about the Edison Alliance and the impact that it can have? Well, when we were asked, would we like to join the Edison Alliance by the World Economic Forum, I immediately said yes, because I see UNDP as the United Nations Development Program as one of the accelerators that we can bring to bear on a world that is still trying to, first of all, understand how technology can change development trajectories, what kind of policy context I need. But above all, we need to bring business, science, technology, citizens, civil society into a dialogue with one another. This is truly how ecosystems are built. This is how development revolutions happen. And the Edison Alliance is precisely that. And it then also picked um, you know, areas such as health and education as domains in which we would forge a common cause and leverage our respective institutional capacities to quickly both accelerate programs on the ground or at least platforms. And, and one of the things that we are uh, developing right now is a digital um, inclusion navigator, which is a, a sort of platform that allows best practices to quickly become available. And the beauty of what this technology age, this fourth industrial revolution has in a sense presented us with is that what once used to be a logic in particularly, let's say, the, the core of capitalism and how markets work is that intellectual property always has to be owned, privatized, and essentially be used in an exclusionary sense. We also see an extraordinary potential of open source platforms, collective learning, shared learning. Uh, we can advance together on, on um, solving problems that still allow us to then have particular products that are registered trademarks or our services that are provided through you know a particular corporate service model. But that ability to work together, particularly when it comes to helping the other half of the world, if I may put it, uh, that is not yet properly connected, not yet able to access this digital universe, to quickly become part of it. It'll help us all. It'll make the world fairer, more equal, more stable, and less likely to fall into sort of groups of people who feel excluded. And once you feel excluded, you um, also are more likely to become politically alienated. 
this is very much part of the digital age as well, something we have to confront proactively. And I think Edison is a good platform at the moment on which some of the largest um, technology organizations, but also some of the largest, for instance, development organizations or UN organizations, UNICEF is another one, um, the International Telecommunications Union, we are all engaged and invested in, in advancing this frontier. I've been lucky enough to see this tool, which launches today widely to the public at the annual meeting. But help us understand the impact. If something like this hadn't been created, what would happen? Well, I think two principles really define the value of, of such a platform. First of all, it is shared learning. And it, it just allows us to not have a Silicon Valley or places where uh, technology companies kind of um, aggregate being the, the definition of whether you're part of this uh, new world or not. Secondly, I think it is um, very much about trying to use the wealth of knowledge in a, in a collective design and innovation effort. The unicorns of this world cited as sort of extraordinary phenomena, but we often forget that also governments, government policy, education, infrastructure, those are often the foundations upon which these extraordinary stories then thrive. And, you know, the Digital Inclusion Navigator is precisely to demonstrate how can you create the conditions in which these wonderful stories can not only you know, begin to happen, but also how do they transform our society's view of their own future, whether it is about reducing poverty, whether it is the accelerated transition to a decarbonized world. These are existential challenges of our time, and digitalization you know, ultimately is both an accelerator, but hopefully also a, a way of unifying these efforts. And what impact can we see in 10, 20, 30 years? What is the before and after that better knowledge share on policy can provide? I think it almost begins with the individuals who join a platform such as the Edison Alliance. We learn from one another. We begin to understand, to look at something that maybe if I'm a company, I'm looking at a market. If I'm UNDP, I'm looking at the society. Both are, in fact, in the same universe and therefore need to be understood also in that context. It simply helps us to understand better the, the kind of context in which we work. Secondly, we often underestimate how much alignment of public policy, private sector investments are fundamental to, to breakthroughs. So I think these are immediate effects of such a platform. Now, let us see. Time will tell whether we have some fantastic breakthroughs, whether it's maybe in certain countries where we join forces and are literally able to bring forward by 10 years the ability to include virtually 100% of the population in terms of having access to um, to digital, or whether it is perhaps new platforms that are developed. You know, a lot is happening in the context also of humanitarian and emergency responses and using satellite data. How can we create instant access to humanitarian workers on the ground, be it in Yemen right now, be it in Afghanistan, be it in the Ukraine, where immediate decisions have to be made. Where are people not able to access food? Where are power lines interrupted or forest fires, to give you another example? Today, we have an almost instant capacity to translate that knowledge into actionable uh, information for those on the ground who are able to do something about it. So all of these are frontiers that I hope the Edison Alliance can continue to foster. And some of them will break free and, and you know, in 10 years' time, maybe not remember that they might have had a spark from the Alliance. Um, and then went off on their own. So this is, I think, literally the, the spectrum of possibility. Do you think that people overlook the role that policy plays in underpinning great technological advancements? Yes, absolutely. And I think one participant at World Economic Forum meetings that you often also include in podia is uh, Professor Mariana Masukatu. I think she has been in recent years at the forefront of trying to remind ourselves that 
you know, it's not only markets, it's not only brilliant entrepreneurs, it's not only investors who create wealth, who create new frontiers. Uh, virtually all major aspects of our lives today have in one form or another also a public dimension to it. And start with the education system. You know, we talk about the brilliance of science in responding to COVID-19. And, you know, it has been an extraordinarily exciting moment to see the world being able to develop a vaccine. We forget that education institutions created, you know, generations of scientists, the funding of research, but then also the kind of public policy that allowed these vaccines to quickly come to market. The internet and much of what we consider the digital infrastructure today has a great deal to do also with the regulatory decisions, the incentives that were created, the investments that society taxpayers make for economies to become digitally, both technologically established in terms of infrastructure, but also digitally literate. And I think it is when this interplay between public and private, whether it is government and corporation, whether it is the public sector and the citizens um, or the markets are well aligned, that's when we see the most successful economic stories of the 20th century also um, speaking to what we need to achieve in the 21st century. So we've talked a little bit about all the things that can go right. What could hold it back? This is a moment where I think the world is confronted, first of all, with an extraordinary phenomenon of a war in Europe, Russia's invasion of the Ukraine, having created an extraordinary uh, degree of uh, suffering, first of all, for Ukrainians, but also simultaneously, as the Secretary General's Global Crisis Response Group articulated, a series of domino effects and ripples across the world. We are a globalized economy. The setbacks, economically speaking, that we are now confronted just in the next few months, I mean, the explosion in food prices, fuel prices, the cost of capital going up, 80 developing countries being in a potential debt distress situation because of two and a half years of the COVID pandemic. All of this uh, shows how vulnerable we are. And, you know, the predicted decline in GDP growth in a recovery period of 1% means hundreds of billions of dollars less in income and investable financing that governments have available. So we are facing a major economic setback. We're also facing a geopolitical disruption that could turn into rupture. And our world has benefited enormously, whether it is through trade, through global capital flows, but also through many economies becoming players in the global marketplace and technology traveling, such as with digital, almost instantaneously today across the globe, where, you know, sometimes a farmer, perhaps in a remote area where there is not even a regular power supply, but a solar photovoltaic installation has created electricity, you're connected to a telephony uh, grid through cellular infrastructure is able to interact literally with clients and customers on the other side of the world. I mean, these are extraordinary things that have happened. All of this um, is obviously in danger of being either reversed or, or even lost. We are at a moment in time where our ability to work together is being seriously challenged and questioned for not only the events uh, in Ukraine, and we are, since 2008, the financial crisis, but also with the growing inequality in the world, all the riots, the political radicalization and extremism we saw, you know, in the years 2010 to 2017, 18, 19. We are not a world that is comfortable with where it is heading. And insecurity is becoming really a defining element of our time. People are not confident about the future. They are less trusting of their neighbors. These are all indicators that could easily throw us back. And therefore, you know, working for the United Nations right now is a very clarifying moment. Yes, rightly, people are questioning, is multilateralism living? Can the United Nations 
provide an antidote to many of these developments? I believe we can, but certainly not on its own and certainly not against a world that loses sight of the fact that we are so dependent on one another. These are extraordinarily clarifying moments, I think. And so to anyone who believes that technology is the solution to everything, I think we are living in a moment in time that is a stark reminder that the most important thing that we can strive for and need to strive for is, first of all, peace in the world, and secondly, continuing to build that understanding that we have shared interests that should always predominate over perhaps competing interests or differences, but we're not doing too well right now. I think we have many Achilles heels and therefore peace and the ability to, in a world that is so often defined by what divides us, actually finding back to that civilizational appreciation that we cannot afford in this day and age to go to war with one another. It is um, not just because of nuclear weapons, it is actually a form of self-destruction that is um, even more potent than in the 20th century. So I literally stay up at night right now wondering what is it that we can do? And you know, there is no silver bullet, none of us, not even the most powerful head of government or the head of the United Nations, you know, can simply say, let's do things differently. But each one of us is a part of this world. And I think we need to focus right now on what it is we can do. We are citizens of the world. And this is a moment where we have to step up. What gives you hope? What inspires you? People do. You know, I, I am somebody who has been inspired by so many individuals that I have either had the privilege of meeting in my work, sometimes community leaders, visionary reformers, uh, a new president who, you know, after years of living under a dictatorship or an authoritarian regime, suddenly politics changes. They are given the opportunity to lead a country. But I'm also somebody who, you know, has often thought of people like Mahatma Gandhi and Nelson Mandela or Wangari Maathai, not as the people they were by the time they were at the end of their life, so to speak, but who they were when they were literally no one. You know, Mahatma Gandhi in South Africa got beaten up in the streets. Nelson Mandela got locked up for almost three decades in a, in a jail. And Wangari Maathai began as a young girl in a village in Kenya and became a Nobel Prize uh, laureate. These stories, I think, you know, are not um, unique. They are not singular. They're in their thousands every day. Not everybody becomes famous. So that is my conviction for why we need to give hope to people. We need to give them reasons for optimism. That is not always to say things are okay. Things are not okay. But people can change the world. And movements don't start with a million people marching. They start with one person talking to the next person. And before you know it, you have movements and you have citizen uh, power. And I think that ultimately um, is in some of the worst moments in history, what has allowed us to step back from the precipice and, and look for better ways forward. You've worked with top leaders around the world. How have those experiences changed how you lead? Well, first of all, when you have the privilege of working for the United Nations and therefore, you know, have the ability to, to literally visit countries across the globe, meet people in completely different settings from your own. I think one of the things you learn is that you need to carry a great deal of empathy with you. I think empathy is a, a very defining element of credible leadership because leaders sometimes are judged by, you know, how loudly they speak or how, you know, confidently they project. That's a communication skill, but true leadership, I think, and the way people respond to it is if I have the feeling that somebody actually listened first, is informed by what I might think, and then forms their opinion about what their role is in this in this context, be it in a company or 
in a society or on a particular issue. So I think having grown up professionally speaking in so many different parts of the world, I've had the privilege of living in many you know, communities, societies and countries um, over the last 30 years, certainly has changed my outlook and has made me, I think, far more of a listener uh, than I would have been without that. Secondly, I think authenticity. None of us, I think, should uh, pretend that we have all the solutions. I think what people expect from us is a degree of honesty and integrity that, you know, perhaps authenticity best captures because um, honesty is a foundational part of how people will either trust you and, and trust is fundamental to leadership. And frankly speaking, I, I also once attended an executive development program, you know, at some of the best business schools of the world that the, the then World Bank president, Jim Wolfenstein, had organized for World Bank staff and invited some externals to participate. And I was already struck then that, you know, the principles of good leadership are actually not fundamentally different, whether you are a CEO in a company, whether you are a, you know, perhaps a minister or a prime minister, or whether you are a leader in a civil society organization or a movement. And I think that is something that to me has been quite revealing because it shows that leadership ultimately is something that has a great deal to do with how people see you and how you are able to interact with people. And, you know, everything else flows from that. I think the willingness to look at something for a moment from a totally different vantage point um, simply broadens your own spectrum, your own understanding. But, you know, some of this, I think, I, I certainly am not a teacher about listening. These are just my own, um, let's say, reflections on how encounters between people that sometimes believe they have nothing that they agree on or nothing in common can start on a very different footing if one takes that kind of approach, yeah. If there is one message that you could leave with our listeners, what would that be? You know, we, we spoke earlier about this sense of um, insecurity and, and UNDP, you know, produced a, a new report a few months ago called um, uh, Human Security and New Threats to It in, in the Age of the Anthropocene. And, and one of those staggering figures in there was that six out of seven people today actually feel a great deal of insecurity. And... Insecurity has not only something to do with one's own sense of what is happening in the world, it also erodes our confidence about ourselves and what we can do about it. So I think one of the things that I hold on to is that the power of one is immensely important. You know, so many people feel disempowered in the world today, whether you're a young person, maybe a girl child in school, whether you are a person living in the midst of a civil war or perhaps in a country where electricity is not yet available to your family, to your household, you know, people can change things. And I think we, we need to continuously um, focus on giving individuals the sense that they matter, but they can also matter to what happens next. And I think that to me remains a sort of departure point in anything we do. And wherever it takes you, that is your life's choice, but believe in the power of one in order to change what happens next. That was Ackham Steiner. For more highlights on the annual meeting, go to wef.ch so you don't miss a single story, episode, or podcast from my digital media colleagues. And follow hashtag WEF22 to catch the highlights in real time on social media. This episode of Meet the Leader was produced and presented by me with studio production by Connor Smith. That's it for now. I'm Linda Lucina from the World Economic Forum. Have a great day. <laughs>